0: You're listening to TIP.
1: With the new build, you're adding so much value to raw land. It might make more sense that it's a little bit more margin in the deal or a little bit more profit that can cushion you should something go wrong. So long story short, when I started to run the numbers on new builds, those made a ton of more sense and began to kind of go full steam ahead in terms of how do I get a new build even when I don't have any money or experience.
2: Hey, everybody. In this week's episode, I got to sit down with Donovan Adesoro to talk about how his start in house hacking fueled the desire to do larger and larger deals, which led him to developing 16 duplexes in the Houston area with an additional 30 that are currently under construction. Donovan is a 26-year-old real estate developer and also investor relations director for Fund That Flip. He's originally from St. Paul, Minnesota, and graduated with a petroleum engineering degree in 2019. After moving to Houston, Texas for a job in the oil industry, he got his start in real estate with a house hack of a duplex during the middle of the pandemic. Noticing a lack of duplex inventory throughout the city, Donovan decided to raise outside capital and build them himself, which he has done several times over and intends to get into even larger scale projects in 2023. Listening to Donovan's stories and hearing how he's accomplished so much at a really young age made me feel somewhat like an underachiever, but I love stories like his, and it shows what's possible with the right amount of determination and grit. And I found this episode super inspirational. And so, without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with Donovan Day's Sorrow.
0: You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey.
2: Welcome to the Real Estate 101 show. I'm your host, Patrick Donnelly today. And with me today is a young man I'm really excited to get on and talk with. He's done a lot at a very young age, Donovan Adesoro. Donovan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me
1: out. I'm excited to be here.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited as well. We talked a little bit before just about growing up. So I wanted to hear kind of about your younger years where you grew up as a kid. What were your hopes and aspirations as you were a young guy?
1: Yeah, for sure. So like uh I'd say any kid who grew up in typical kind of inner city, big city of like St. Paul, Minneapolis, I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to the NBA for sure. Like it's not even a question. I was really into basketball. Right. So, but you know, being my dad and mom, kind of regular nine to five blue collar workers, didn't have any investments or anything like that. So I didn't know about that kind of stuff growing up. Just it was, the plan was always that they told me is, you know, go to college, get a good job, and then just kind of work that for 40 years. you know, especially my dad uh, being Nigerian immigrant, they're huge on education. So even though I love basketball, he always made sure like education was a a big piece of that and and doing well in school. But yeah, I definitely thought I was going somewhere with basketball, but wasn't as good as I may have thought.
2: Did you play high school? I mean, what age were you? Were you like, I don't know if the NBA is going to work out?
1: Yeah. So like, I'd say probably, yeah, I played like, you know, since I was like maybe four years old and like played in rec leagues and all that, played middle school, high school probably like sophomore, or junior year. I was like, dang, every, these other kids that I'm playing against are a lot better than I am. And some of them aren't even getting like scholarship offers. So I was like, okay, maybe let me just double down on school, make sure I get into a decent school and could get a, you know, a decent career. So I'd say like junior year.
2: So I started to realize that that uh, that was the plan. So you focus more on academics or were you always focused on academics?
1: Yeah, I'd always focus on academics in a in a way like I was you know I always I always got good grades, but in terms of like uh, I'd say like you know scholarships, right? Like I maybe wasn't as focused on trying to get scholarships until I realized okay, I'm probably not going to get uh, athletic scholarships. I need to really double down on on that. I'm um, gonna try to get some of those. And then I was working at the time, so like as soon as I turned sixteen, I started working at Arby's. Arby's was a great company. I would say that I hated working fast food, but again, you know, needed some money to buy clothes and whatnot and, and whatever. So instead of playing basketball, like my senior year, I think I just doubled down on working and scholarships because I was like, yeah, this isn't going to really take me anywhere.
2: Summer times too. Were you working at Arby's or did you have other, other jobs?
1: Yeah. So I worked at Arby's up until I turned 18, like the end of my senior year. Cause I have like an early birthday to turn senior year, or 18 senior year. Then I started working at a, at a gas station, which a little better but still not ideal but um, i think those are both super good yeah super great in teaching my like, customer service skills i think you know now i can handle all types of people no problem because of you know what i went through there
2: so what happened next you did you apply you applied to universities how did you decide on on the career field go into how you chose what you chose
1: so i I knew I was going to have to take up student loans to, you know, get, make it through college. And so I was like, okay, I need a job that's going to be able to pay these back, uh, you know, on the, on the back end. So this probably isn't the most, uh, what advice that most parents want to hear for their kids. But I just Googled what was the highest paying major with a four-year degree, because I wanted to make some money, but I also didn't want to stay in school for, you know, 12 years and become a doctor. So the thing that came up was petroleum engineering. And I was like, Yeah, you know, sounds good enough and just looked at every school that had petroleum engineering. There's only like six or seven. And so just applied to all of them. And then kind of just went to, ended up at the University of Tulsa um, in Oklahoma because they honestly just had the most scholarship money. So it just, just made sense.
2: So did your parents push you in any kind of direction growing up, or they just mostly wanted you to get a good education and a good job? Was there any kind of specific thing they wanted you to do?
1: No, not at all. Um, I guess, which was nice. I mean, it was it was just basically college. They didn't really care what exactly I did because like my mom has a like a social work degree, so she's not really using that. So it, she, but she was like, you know, both parents were kind of stressful on just going to college in general. Didn't matter what you did, just kind of go get a four year degree is basically the motto.
2: So you got your petroleum engineering degree. What happened next?
1: Yeah, I get the petroleum engineering degree, and so I interned for a company in Houston junior year, and then you know I got the full time offer and came went down there July of 2019, which is when I graduated. Graduated in May, and then went down there in July for the full time job. And then, yeah, just started working like everybody else, you know, waking up at five and taking a shower, going to work, and then doing it every day for, you know, five days straight. And then I'm probably maybe two to three months into this. And I'm like, so I got to do this for like 40 years. Like it just, I, I can't, I can't see it. So at night when I would come home from work, I would be just kind of bored looking up ways to maybe make additional income, make investments because I didn't know about any of that stuff growing up. So all of my, education from, I guess, investing in real estate was from podcasts and YouTube videos. So I'd listen to those on the way to work each day. Bigger Pockets was a big one. Then i would listen to, just go on YouTube and just kind of look up, you know, how do I analyze a rental property? Just kind of look up all these things and trying to learn about making money on the side.
2: But you had a great job, right? You, were, you had a good income. I think you got a really nice apartment, nice car, kind of the typical trappings. Talk to us a little bit about that. Did you regret those moves at all?
1: Yeah. Great point. So yeah, I immediately, when I got, you know, cause coming out of college, you know, I thought, okay, this is my salary. Um, and it was, you know, solid salary coming out of college, you know, right at like kind of the six figure mark, which was more than like my parents made combined. So I was ecstatic. I was like, oh yeah, I am set for life, baby. This is, this is it. I made it. And then, you know, bought a new Hyundai, bought the nice, or got the nice apartment downtown. And then like, like I said, like three, four months in, I'm like, gosh, I really don't have much savings. And I, I thought I was making all this money, you know, obviously a good portion is going to taxes, but then, you know, my rent's eating up a good chunk of it. Cause it's downtown. I have the new car payment. Um, you have insurance because I'm, especially when you're under 25, right. Insurance is probably like almost doubles like 200 bucks a month. So all these things are just kind of eating at my income. And I was like, even with such a great job, um, coming out of college and not, not much, uh, yeah not much debt, right? Really, the only debt was really the student loans. And I was like, I'm still don't have enough money to really, I guess I didn't like the amount of savings I had. So if that made sense.
2: Yeah. And it sounds like you weren't too happy with how you were spending your daytime hours or or you just looked around and you're like, I can't imagine being here when I'm 40 or was it that kind of realization?
1: Yeah. It was like, you know, you're going to go to work and you typically, you'd see your bosses and your bosses' bosses. And, you know, in theory, that's should be who you want to become if you want to keep working at the company, or you should want to be somewhat like them or in their role or, or like their responsibilities. And I was just looking at them and just kind of getting a feel for what their lives are like. Like, yeah, you know, got big old house in kind of a suburb, right. Got the family, got the three kids, you know, maybe the wife doesn't, doesn't work as much. She's, you know, a homemaker kind of taking care of the kids, you know, you're taking care of the entire family off of one income. And like, I could see, I was like, I mean, okay, if you have a $500,000 house, if you have three kids and you have, you know, a wife to support also, or a spouse or whoever, whoever's the breadwinner, I mean, that's not a lot of money you're really saving. And so just that thought process of not having enough or being able to, I guess, have that cushion to where if I lost my job, again, because I'm in the oil industry, it's it's pretty volatile. So that's always kind of in the back of my mind is like, what can I, how long can I survive if I happen to lose my job?
2: It was around COVID maybe when you were working there. Did you, was there a threat of a layoff? Did that possibility, was that a possibility that did come up?
1: hundred percent. Yeah, it was a choose possibility. Matter of fact, they had actually offered like voluntary packages um, for everybody. And usually those voluntary packages are people who are for people who have like more tenured with the company, but because of COVID and oil prices, I think, you know, the futures went negative and everybody was kind of talking about that, but you know, even the real prices were. I don't know, under $10, I think at one point. So yeah, they offered anyone who wanted to, to take the package. But then for me, I was like, well, then I have to go find another job. I have no experience. I just started this job, you know, less than a year ago. It'd be tough for me to go get another job. So I just had to stick it out. And what they did for the people who stuck it out was they, they cut everyone's salary 30%. So right off of the bat, the salary was cut 30%, you know, less than a year in mind you this was the time when I was getting my first duplex. So I was actually under contract for the first duplex while the salary got cut by 30%. So as you can imagine, I was freaking out. I was like, well, how am I going to rent this thing? Like nobody's renting during COVID. How am I going to make the payment? So yeah, all these things were going through my mind, but you know, I just kind of persevered through it.
2: So you're kind of planning your escape Hatch, like how how can I get out of this? How how was it that real estate? What was the inspiration there that you kind of got the real estate bug? I know you were listening to Bigger Pockets, but what were some other inspirations?
1: Yeah, so I think the yeah the Bigger Pockets, obviously. I read some books, but again, like I said, I was on Google and YouTube, just checking out all the investment options. So people who are maybe kind of like me and just kind of looking at all the opportunities, like you probably looked at like Turo, looked at e-commerce, looked at. You know, Uber, Lyft, like, should I do that on the side? Like, I looked at everything. The reason why I chose real estate was because, first, the leverage. So you can get a lot with only putting a little down. And that was, that was super key to me. And there's a bunch of low, low down payment loans where you can get in pretty easily. And so for me to get in with almost no money and also eliminate my housing expense, that was like the double, just kind of like a, I don't know, two reasons why I should, uh, um, pick that over maybe some of the other options where weren't as uh you know lucrative, you know, because I'm saving that housing payment by renting the other side of the duplex.
2: So you mentioned some books. What were some of the books that had an impact on you?
1: Yeah. So I think like everyone talks about like Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read that. I've read uh books like The Go Giver, which was not necessarily about real estate, but just you know kind of about just being helpful. And then I read there was a book called Set for Life by Scott Trench. He's actually a a Bigger Pockets guy and does a a website or does one of the podcasts. The key for that book was like it kind of tailored to people who are maybe coming out of college or just getting into real estate where it kind of sets you up of like, okay, if you're coming out of college and you're getting your first job, here are like some of the milestones you should hit. And so I won't summarize the book for everyone. You should go check it out. But it just had a nice kind of, it, it was right for me at the time, which is what I liked about it.
2: Yeah. Scott was a guest on our show a while back, but yeah, I think he's running bigger pockets now. I think he's like in charge of the show.
1: Yeah. I think he's big time CEO. Yeah.
2: We, we were talking about Sean Sweeney before the show and I think Rich Dad Poor Dad was also a catalyst for him. He came across that book at you know in a bookshop and I think he was considering law school and you know, he wasn't really sure about that. He read that book, and it really was a spark that set him in the direction that you know he's now a developer, as you know, and kind of set him on his on his path in in a lot of ways. So, it's a, definitely a great book.
1: Great book, yeah, the classic. Um, definitely worth at least to read once or twice,
2: for sure. I'm also a big fan of Cash Flow. The I don't know if you've read that, but Cash Flow is one of his books as well, which I think is probably a little better. Like, really gets into the yeah. nuts and bolts of you know how to how to create cash flow for your life
1: hundred percent. Yep. That's a great one.
2: So I want to hear more about your decision. You bought this house in Houston. What was the loan like? What was the house like? It was a duplex. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. It was a duplex. So in Texas, there's a loan that a few banks offer. One of the banks in particular, Bank of the Ozarks, I think now offers it. It's a 0% down loan for a one to two unit property. The key with that loan is that there's no income cap requirement. So with a lot of, you know, 0% down loans, there's some sort of cap on your income. The nice thing about that one is that as long as you buy the property, I think has to be in a low to moderate income track. So, and you can Google this just online. Like if you look up your city and then look up LMI track, you'll be able to see which areas qualify. And so if you buy a property in one of those zones, There's no income cap requirement and you can get 0% down. So that's how I got this duplex was buying in one of those areas. And
2: LMI stands for low to moderate income. Okay, got it. Got it. So you bought that place, you moved in one half, you rented out the other half. How did you go about finding your tenants and how was that process? Were they good tenants? Was any horror stories from that experience?
1: Yeah, for sure. There's some interesting stories. So again, like I closed on this one. I closed on the duplex I live in, which I'm still in now. It's uh, of April of 2020. So this was like peak COVID. I mean, even Texas was kind of shut down. Like nothing was open. You had to wait in line at the grocery store to get in because they, so this was like probably the worst time to close on a new property as a new investor. But, you know, I stuck with the, kind of stuck with my guns because the numbers made sense. And you know what I mean? The numbers made sense. I had a target of like, I don't look at a, a duplex or a house hack at least as, you know, what am I gonna make when I live there? The key for me is what it, what am I gonna make when I move out. So I look at what will the each unit rent for when I move out versus my monthly payment. And so from that I wanted at least like a hundred bucks of cash flow, which sounds pretty thin, but the reason why I was okay with that is because mine was new construction. So, you know, there shouldn't be much maintenance on a new construction property, you would think. So I was okay with slightly less cash flow. And so yeah, that's what I, I, I bought that one. And then the tenants I got were from, it was a tough time as you can imagine, because it was COVID, like nobody wanted to do anything. And I went on Facebook and and got like a few different roommates. I was, I was struggling to lease the whole unit in one. So I started leasing it by the room for like, uh, I think like 600 bucks or 500 bucks or so. And that was able to just kind of get me, kind of float me by. My goal was just kind of keep them in for a year and to kind of make it through COVID. And so the, those tenants weren't too bad. They were I think they were relatively clean. The issue that came up was that, you know, two of the tenants were sisters. And then there's one tenant that, you know, just didn't know them because there's three bedroom duplex, a three bedroom unit. And so they the two sisters kind of ganged up on the one tenant for some reason. It was like they got in disagreement and the two kind of ganged up. So it was just like a little like drama. And then that one tenant ended up moving out, but it ended up being a great deal overall. Like it's appreciated as you can imagine from 2020 to now. And so it was just, just kind of getting through that tough part of like, just sticking with it was, um, was well worth it.
2: So there's three bedroom, what kind of square footage is, are on each side? Yeah. Each
1: side's about like 1150 square feet, three bedroom, two bath.
2: Okay. So my co-host Robert Leonard has written a book called the everything guide to house hacking. He's really into house hacking and has done it a lot. We've got a lot of Beginning investors on on the show that are listening in, is that a strategy, house hacking that you would really recommend as a first step to get involved in real estate, or would you maybe have gone a different route looking back on things?
1: Yeah, looking back, I would do it the exact same way. I think the duplex is one of the best ways. Obviously, if you can get if you're really like the real estate and you want to go three to four units, that makes sense too. But I feel like duplex is the easiest way because you're only managing one other tenant, right? If you have, four units, or if you buy a fourplex, you know, you're managing three other tenants, you have to lease three other tenants, just a little bit more difficult. But if you wanted like a super, in my opinion, kind of the lowest risk way is to get a duplex and just rent out the other side. It's a lot easier managing one tenant than than three, um, especially when they're all, you know, in the same complex. So yeah, hundred percent would recommend that as a first step.
2: And then on your unit, are you renting out the other extra rooms too?
1: Yeah, initially I was. So again, like I, wanted to keep as much money as possible. And so I rented out the other two rooms on my side. I actually moved into the smallest bedroom so I could Airbnb the large bedroom. So I was taking out all the stops to increase the the cash flow. Definitely worth it. I don't rent out the rooms anymore now that I'm not as willing to kind of deal with some of that stuff. But uh, yeah, when I first started for a good two years, I rented out the rooms.
2: Tell me about the Airbnb experience. How did that go? Was that more profitable than renting out rooms to individual tenants, or how did it go?
1: Yeah, it was kind of more of like a, I'd say probably like a break even because so in theory it's a little bit more profitable, but because I was right there, I was cleaning it. Like it makes sense for me to hire a cleaner. So anytime Airbnb you know guests left, I'm changing all the sheets and washing everything, cleaning the tubs and whatnot. So in my opinion, I ended up just going back to like just kind of long-term renting it by the room because it just wasn't worth the hassle of constantly cleaning it for like maybe an extra 50, 100 bucks a month. It just, yeah, it wasn't worth it.
2: So what did your cash flow look like once, if you had it fully rented, were you doing better than the hundred dollars that you had initially mentioned or were, what, what did the numbers look like?
1: Yeah. So my, my monthly payment is about 18, it's like 1880 or something, just under 1900. And so each side initially was going to rent for about like 1350. So it was going to be about 2700 gross. And then 1850 was my payment. Um, and that was PITI. So that factored in tax insurance. Um, PITI means principal interest taxes insurance. So that's your total monthly payment to the bank usually. And then they'll pay the taxes and insurance on your behalf. Um, but yeah, so like I had some, some wiggle room for expenses because I, I budgeted about. Uh, like 15% of the gross revenue or of the gross rent. So of the 2,700, I budgeted, call it like 350, 400 bucks um, for expenses. And so that was my performa, like, you know, performa meaning that's what I planned for initially. Um, but now if I were to do it, I think I could get closer to, you know, 1,500 per side. So closer to um, 3,000 um, gross rent. So again, it ended up being a great deal. Do so you
2: still own it? What's the long-term plan with it? Will you hold it forever?
1: yeah good question I'm still trying to figure that out I'm thinking about so there's a you know nice thing in the tax code where if you've lived in it for two of the past five years and you can sell it without you know any capital gains so my, my plan would be to if I do move out is to sell it somewhere in that time frame that way I can you know take advantage of that um, that capital gains
2: yeah yes it's huge actually yeah what's has the place appreciated since you bought it
1: yeah. So I bought it for two seventy five, the 275,000 with a 0% down loan. Payment was, like I said, 1880. Now it's worth about like close to 400 to 410 or so. And then I'd say it's, that's probably where it'll kind of stay, you know, with the rates kind of going higher. I don't think it'll go too much more like in the near term. So yeah, you know, in, in two years, that's not, not a bad return considering I put 0% down.
2: Yeah, no, it's pretty great.
1: Yeah. I got pretty lucky for sure.
2: Is that loan, is that a one time deal or is that something you can do? Could you do it again at this point, or is it just a first time homeowner kind of like program?
1: Yeah, so it's like a it's like a first time it's kinda like first the reason I'm hesitant hesitant is because you can only do it once per bank, as far as I believe. So with like in my example, Bank of the Ozark, I couldn't do anything more with them. But if I can find another bank who can do the zero percent download, I might be able to get away with doing it again. So that's what I'm looking at as maybe my next option. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com. mi That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash M-I for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com M-I Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. So you're doing the house hack. What happens next? Do you start you're still listening to bigger pockets, you're still at the petroleum company, you're still yeah. working on your real estate education. What what happened next after that?
1: Yeah. So again, like you said, I'm still getting educated, still learning. And then bigger pockets, a big thing they talk about is to buy a property, renovate it, or rehab it, rent it out, and then refinance it. And the reason why that would be advantageous is, you know, you can recycle the same amount of capital. You know, if you put 40 grand into a deal for a, a down payment and you renovate it, make it all nice and pretty, rent it out, and you can get a higher value on the appraisal, then you can pull your money back out that you put into it. And so doing something like that was, was super intriguing to me because again, like I didn't have any money really.
2: So that, that's the BRRRR strategy, right? That you're referring to? The BRRRR strategy.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
2: So you're studying the burst strategy. And I know Brandon Turner he at the time I remember listening to him. He was really into the bird strategy. The one of the hosts of Bigger Pockets. Did, you did not go forward with that, or talk to us about that process about analyzing the bird deals that you were looking at.
1: Yeah, so I was on YouTube, kind of checking out like what does the bird strategy mean, like how do I analyze a property, and so I was looking at different deals in Houston where basically a single family home would need to be fixed up you know, I would try to estimate some sort of budget. Again, that was tough because again, I didn't have any experience. So what I did to get around that was to just reach out to some contractors on these local Facebook groups. So like any decently sized city probably has a, you know, a Cleveland Facebook group or Houston Facebook group. So I'd reach out on there and just get some estimates of, okay, how much would a new kitchen and countertops cost? And just try to budget some numbers um, that way. And so as I was doing the numbers on these deals in Houston, it looked like the, the numbers would, were pretty thin, meaning like you might not make that much profit if, if something went wrong. So like if you forecasted that you would maybe sell it for the highest comparable comp or you'd get appraised at the highest comparable, you know, property similar to it, then it might work. But for me being a little conservative, I didn't really feel comfortable with that. And so I began to look at, you know, what would the numbers look like on a new build? Because of uh, with the new build, you're adding so much value to raw land, it might ma- it might make more sense that it's a little bit more margin in the deal or a little bit more profit that can cushion you should something go wrong. so long story short, when I started to run the numbers on new builds, those made a ton of more sense, and began to kind of go full steam ahead in terms of how do I get a new build, even when I don't have any money or experience
2: So I want to talk about that there's a lot of mental hurdles that people. First time investors have to jump through and smash through. What were some of yours? How did you get have the confidence to start looking at these deals and considering them with no experience?
1: Yeah, for sure. It was it was tough, obviously. I was doubting myself, which rightfully so, because I didn't have any experience. So the key thing, I think, was the education piece. So really making sure you understood the numbers that you had on the basically in your in your model or And again, when I say model, I'm being pretty dramatic. My model may have been a piece of paper with four lines on it with land price, construction cost. What are they going to sell for? And that's it. Like it may have just been those three numbers. So, but the point is I got, I drilled down really on those, those numbers to make sure I was comfortable in terms of presenting it to somebody who may be willing to partner with me. So, you know, the land numbers were pretty straightforward, right? You can get, you can get the land values from. Pretty much just going on zillow on the mls obviously those may be a little bit overpriced but you can more or less get a feel for what land is selling for and then close to that it's like you also can get the what is it going to sell for right you can go on the mls and you may not be able to see all the transactions but you can get a feel for what stuff is selling for based on you know what is it listed at if it's listed at 400 it's probably not going to sell at like 300 overnight going to sell somewhere and call on like 380 to 400 maybe so i did that's where I found those two numbers. And then the construction costs, which was the toughest part is what, what I did for that is I would send a kind of identical deal or a similar deal that was on the MLS to a contractor or a builder and say, Hey, contractor builder, how much would you charge me to build this? And once I had that, that was enough to kind of gauge what the construction, construction costs would be. Okay. He's, he wants to charge me $200,000 to build a 2000 square foot duplex. So that means he's charging me about a hundred bucks a foot. Okay. Well, now you have the hundred bucks a foot number. You can kind of scale it up and scale it down. So for example, okay, I know he's going to charge 180,000 for 1800 square foot duplex. So those are the kind of the numbers I, I got confident with.
2: Did you feel at the time that you should have done a flip first to just learn basic construction and get a basic sense of construction knowledge before you jumped into doing ground up development, what was that? What was your thinking there? Because I know when I first started into it, I was like, I got to do a flip first to just understand the entire process. W- were you thinking along those same lines or no?
1: Yeah. So I was like, yeah, I got to get the flip done. And then I can, you know, do other stuff. But again, be, just because the numbers were so thin on the flip, I didn't feel comfortable, you know, asking someone to partner with me on the flip, knowing that it could easily. Go sideways because the margin or the profit was so thin, and so it took me a while to kind of get comfortable with just going straight to the new build. But when I was looking at again the the profit or the margin for error, I was like, okay, even though I don't know anything and I'm dumb and all that, even again, it, it still might work out okay because maybe instead of making forty percent, we make twenty percent, which is isn't the end of the world. It's kind of what I was thinking in my in my head.
2: So what were some of the biggest challenges? You I want to kind of start at the beginning. You're buying individual lots. How are you finding those? How are you sourcing them? How are you financing them? How did you partner up with people? I threw a lot of questions there at you. So let's start with no. just first, how are you finding the lots?
1: Yeah. So I was finding the lots through mainly through realtors and wholesalers. And the way I was getting in contact with them initially was the realtors, I would, I would see who had sold. Similar pieces of land, like within the last month or two. And I would call them up, just kind of cold call them. Hey, this is Donovan. I'm looking to do a new build. I'm looking for land just like you sold on 123 Main Street. If you have anything else, you know, feel free to send it to me before it comes to market, ideally. That was kind of my pitch, was, you know, closing uh, quickly and with cash um, to send me your kind of off market land deals. And so that's how I found some deals. The other was wholesalers. And so in a lot of these Facebook groups that are just public, you can just join them. Um, You'll see wholesalers post deals that they have off market. And so we found, uh, I'd I'd say our first ones came through the realtor pocket listings. Then some came through the wholesalers and some were just on market.
2: I wanna backtrack. You mentioned a pocket listing. Explain to our listeners what a pocket listing is for people that might not know.
1: Yeah, good point. So the pocket listing is essentially a listing that a realtor has secured with a seller but hasn't necessarily listed it on the market yet. So, you know, it's coming to market, realtor and and the seller are planning to list it, but the realtor may have someone who's a kind of a perfect fit or perfect buyer for that. And they may shoot it over to them in hopes that they just buy it and make the transaction quick and easy for everybody without having to go through the process of listing.
2: What were some of the ways you developed a good rapport and relationship with both the wholesalers and the realtors not having any experience, how did you gain their trust as someone to be taken seriously?
1: It was tough for sure. As you can imagine, I think at the time I was 23. So they're like, you know, what are you going to do with it, a lot? Like you don't have any money, which they were right. But what I did was kind of specifically outlined my criteria. So I said, Hey, I want a 5,000 square foot lot in this zip code, non-flood zone. It has utilities accessible. So basically, getting really granular in your criteria can make them take you a lot more seriously. Because it's like, okay, this guy knows what he's looking for. It's not just, hey, Donovan wants me to send him any off-market deal. That that doesn't really—you're not going to be first in their mind when they find the right deal. So when I was very granular, hey, I want something here, you know, this size, this square footage, you know, not flood zone. I start to pop in their mind when they when they think of something. And then one thing, one more thing to add, just for kind of the newbies and. Like myself, we're getting started was to, when they send you something that doesn't fit, make sure to explain why it doesn't fit. A lot of times realtors, wholesalers may send something to somebody or potential buyer and the potential buyer doesn't reply with anything. They just don't respond. You know, that maybe if you're big time, you can do that. But I think when you're new, it helps really to explain why that lot doesn't work for you and just kind of giving them the kind of quick feedback makes them feel a little bit more confident in your ability to execute.
2: So it's almost education in two ways. It sounds like you're educating them on the specificity of exactly what you're looking for. And then when they are sending you deals, you're educating them on why something wouldn't meet your criteria. And then by doing both those processes, you're really honing in on you know teaching them exactly what you're looking for. Talk to us about that first lot that you bought. How did you purchase it? Had you partnered with somebody at that point?
1: So around the time when I was getting guys familiar with realtors and wholesalers, I started to put together a presentation with the numbers I mentioned earlier of like how confident I was with them. So once I was confident with those numbers and confident that, that I could get it done one way or another, probably with a bunch of mistakes, but j- confident nonetheless, put together a quick presentation, just outlining kind of what the plan was. Okay. I want to, we're going to buy a piece of land in this area, this zip code. Here's the reason why I like the area. Um, here are the numbers on the deal here's what the profit split will be. Here's what I need from you. I need X amount of dollars. I think the first one I needed maybe like 50,000 total. And the land on that first deal that, you know, going to your second part of your question was about 36,000 or something. So right around 36,000. And then the rest of the money of that 50,000 I was requesting was going to be used for plans and permitting.
2: So how did you find that first investor? It was a Facebook group. Is that, did I hear that correctly?
1: Yeah, correct. So, during this time when I was looking at the when I was analyzing deals for flips, kind of we talked about earlier, I was constantly networking with people on these Facebook groups in terms of one of them was like a Bigger Pockets one, one of them was like an apartment investors something. Again, just different real estate Facebook groups, and specifically looking for people who were okay with investing out of state. So, for example, I kind of targeted people who would say, "Hey, my name's John, Joe, whoever." Um, I'm looking to hire a property manager out of state. Does anyone have any advice? So so people who were posting something about um investing out of state, that made me know that they were comfortable with not necessarily seeing their investment. And so I would comment on their post or I would DM them saying, Hey, my name's Donovan. I have this opportunity to build duplexes with as little as, you know, fifty thousand dollars out of pocket. And you kinda have me as your boots on the ground and I take care of everything and you just kinda maybe sit back and collect the updates and hopefully collect the check on the back end and a lot of people were interested but again I didn't have any experience so they kept were, they kept saying that sounds good but you know I'll catch you on the next one or no thank you for now call me in like a year which made sense but eventually found one doctor in New Jersey who was like okay yeah I'm in that that sounds good
2: What would you say was the key to, what did you do that convinced him that he should put $50,000 with you and move forward with the investment?
1: Yeah, so I I was really trying to focus on just the margin for error of the deal and as well as how all the ways he was protected. So I said, hey, it's like, when we're buying this piece of land, it's not like I can just take it and sell it, right? Or you don't even have to send, you know, when we buy this piece of land, you don't have to send me the money personally or to the business account. You can wire it directly to the title company. That way, if you're worried about, you know, me, right? You don't know me completely understand it. You may not want me to necessarily transferring funds. No problem at all. So just getting comfortable with the process and the logistics of it of like, not so much focusing on how much money they were going to make per se, but focusing on all the ways, all the downsides that I'm trying to protect already. Okay. Here's the way that you, you. You might be able to get burnt with someone else that you're not going to get burnt with me, right? You don't have to send any money to me. Um, we're going to create the LLC through a lawyer, you know, 500 bucks. So we're, we're doing all that legally in the right way. So just, yeah, really focusing on hedging the downside.
2: So making sure you had a margin of safety, you convinced him that way. Did, were you talking to him face to face? Were you flying to New Jersey to meet this guy? Was it Zoom meetings, phone calls? How are you doing that?
1: Yeah. Only phone calls and emails. So I think to this day, this has been, we're going on two and a half years now. I still have not met him in
2: person. And you have done, how many lots have you bought with him? Eight. Eight. That's crazy. That's wild. Interesting.
1: Yeah. Very, very crazy. He's, uh, no, he's, he's nice. But you know, once he realized that like, okay, Donovan's kind of doing stuff the right way, he's being diligent. like, you know, if I'm making a mistake, I'm letting him know, okay, here's what I did wrong. Like, okay, maybe I should have talked to the architect before talking to the city or whatever it was, the mistake I made, I, I try to keep him in the loop. And so he's like, you know, as he was kind of seeing that he's okay, let's get another one. And then, you know, after like the second one, he's like, okay, actually, let's, let's scale up to eight. So um, when he said that, we just started to find more land that kind of fit our criteria. And then we just kept buying more.
2: And were the lots you were buying, what kind of neighborhood was it? Were they all centrally located? Were you spread out? Were you trying to keep things centralized? Yeah, definitely trying to keep things centralized. So actually, it's, they're pretty,
1: they're actually in the same area, same zip code as the duplex I bought to live in. So the reason why is because it's one of the few non-flood zone areas of Houston that's also pretty affordable and also close to, you know, the medical center downtown or close to the three universities. So I was very focused on this area because that's where the comps were, right? I didn't want to go and build something with someone else's money and not have an idea of what it was going to be worth on the back end. So I wanted to be pretty much certain, okay, here's what the comps are saying right now. We're going to build to that comp. And so I was just kind of trying to stay, keep the risk down as much as possible while also being in kind of a gentrifying area, which is which is what it is.
2: So did you have a playbook that you were using to follow step-by-step that somebody that you were following along and saying, here's what I need to do by the lot. I need to get permits. I need to talk to an architect. Talk to us about that process. What kind of playbook you were using, or were you just making it up as you went along?
1: Oh yeah. I would kill for a playbook going back then. I mean, I wish I had it. I did not have one. So I was, yeah, I was making it up as I go. I mean, even when the first investor said he was interested, I was like, okay, okay, what do I do now? Just because I, I didn't even, I didn't think I would get that far. And so each step I'm, I'm kind of making it up. Um, but w- what I think I did do well or try to mitigate some risk is, you know, get the good, a good team uh, behind me. So like I made sure the architect and the person doing the permitting like was ex- or experienced and they have they've done duplexes, they've done them in the area I'm looking to do them in. So just trying to rely on people who may have a little bit more experience to execute what they do well. And similarly with the lender, you know, they've lent to newer borrowers like myself. So I just try to rely on the team more so. But yeah, it was a lot of making it up along the way for sure.
2: So for the financing and and getting the money to do the projects, were you using the, the land, the lot that you had as collateral to then fund the construction costs or was the doctor funding the entire thing?
1: Yeah, so the the way he wanted to do it at first was he was going to fund the entire thing, but instead he wanted to leverage that money by getting more lots. So, like we could have done two duplexes cash or we could have bought, you know, eight pieces of land and then leverage those with a bank loan to do the eight duplexes. So, yeah, we would buy the land in cash and then leverage that for the typically the entire amount
2: of the construction. And the banks were okay with doing that kind of loan for you. Obviously. Yeah. So, yeah. As you, it, the only reason they were
1: is because my partner had to sign on, right? So, partner is a, you know, kind of a higher net worth individual. So, even though we didn't necessarily have the experience because he had, we had already bought the lane in cash, plus he had well over a million dollar net worth, they were okay with, um, with giving that loan, assuming both of us sign a, a full recourse loan. Recourse meaning that, if the loan goes sideways and we can't pay all the loan back, then they are in the clear to come after some of our personal assets, i.e. our home in that case.
2: So he was a really key part of making all this happen. I mean, without him, it would have been really tough, right? So that was the first hurdle is gathering the money, which is often the case.
1: I had yeah, so there, it would have been either really, really tough without him, or really expensive. You know, going a, a kind of a hard money route and paying a bunch of a bunch of points and you know for a new borrower.
2: I had Eric Weatherholtz on recently, and he he had a quote recently about you know capital being the lifeblood of real estate, and you know without capital you're not doing deals. How would you recommend to younger guys, younger people in general? How to raise capital, you went into it a little bit, but how to, how to raise capital and how to find a partner that you align with. That can also also be really difficult is finding someone you just align with philosophically.
1: Yeah, 100%, that is a big piece of it. Again, obviously, like I mentioned, the presentation was, was super helpful. But again, like I, I guess really focused on was like looking at the downsides, like poke holes in your own story or take your your story to someone else and let them poke holes in it. I then kind of come up with a kind of a defense for whatever the maybe concern is in terms of like finding investors, you know, Facebook groups, they have meetups as well. So like one of my investors actually came through a meetup. Um, so I was going to these local Houston meetups, you know, they, they're put on by whoever, like you can look them up on meetup.com. Um, they have them all the time. So I think finding them was, was through something like that, as well as maybe posting on social media, that has been a, Kind of a game changer for me to kind of propel my business forward was, you know, posting on Twitter, not so much to say like, oh, you know, here, you know, look what I'm doing. I'm more so posed to get people to understand like how I think about things, because when investors can see how you think about things, they can decide if they kind of agree with that and if they kind of want to align themselves with it. So for example, I've been posting on Twitter for a few, you know, maybe a year and a half kind of consistently, and so now when I meet potential investors in person, they kind of already know how I think about things. And it's not, it's kind of an immediate yes or no. It's either, okay, I saw the way you think about things, I saw which your projects you did, I'm not interested, or I saw it and I and I liked it and I'm kind of ready to move forward. So whatever you can do to kind of get your your thought process out there in the in the world will definitely help as well.
2: That's a great point. So growing your Twitter following, were you basically Posting about your process as you went along, were you just sharing your learnings and like, here's what I'm doing world and both your mistakes and the successes?
1: Exactly, yeah. So however small something was that I was doing, I, I would share it. And and I think it's, an, it's a little intimidating, right? Because if you're on Twitter, like there's some people doing some amazing things at a high level and they've been doing it for like 10 plus years. So you're like, why would anyone care about my little house hack duplex? But the important thing is is like, people want to see, people like to help people kind of coming up from what I've seen, at least in the real estate community. And especially on Twitter, people love to help people kind of up and coming that are like, that see they're working hard. So, you know, I would just post about like even my house hack duplex, like, okay, here's my income. Here's, um, you know, here's how I rented out the bedrooms. I use this website, whatever it was, I would just post about it. And just to kind of get my dot process out there as well as, you know, through the building, I would post about my mistakes. Okay, here's what I did wrong. I, for example, one of the biggest, bigger threads that I did was I waited too long to order my gas meters, ended up costing, uh, you know, four months of interest payments, which ended up being like $8,000. So, you know, posting stuff like that on there and just being transparent, I think helps kind of builds trust, even with people who may not necessarily have spoken to you before, but they can, they can see where you're coming from.
2: Yeah. Real estate Twitter is such a great resource. Are you learning, are you using it also continuing to learn from, from it? And do you ask questions, for example, like if you run into a hurdle, do you put it out there? Like, how would you guys handle this?
1: Yeah. That's the amazing thing about Twitter is you can kind of get anything answered and not even, doesn't necessarily be uh, specific to real estate. The reason I actually got the job I am at now um, with fund that flip um, as a, as a lender on the investor relations team is because I would, I posted about, Hey, I'm thinking about leaving my oil and gas job to maybe do, I don't know, investment banking or, but I would prefer to do something real estate related. And so I got a DM from someone who was, um, kind of higher up in the company and said, Hey, like you may take a look at this position, see what you think. And, you know, let's talk about it. So even stuff like that, you can get, you can, I'd say the last like four quality job offers haven't come off LinkedIn. They've came from Twitter. So that's a big piece. And then, yeah, if I have, I'm stuck on a construction piece, you know, side of things. I mean, I post a question, I think just maybe a few months ago, I said, Hey, my water meter guy is completely backed up. Does anyone have a plumber that they can recommend? Somebody immediately reached out, DM'd me, and I've been using that plumber for two months now. So again, just all types of value you can get from there, which is why I try to post so much because I get so much from it. I feel like the least I can do is try to put something out there for maybe people who are starting to come up and want to just kind of learn. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
2: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California and our Airbnb home What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. Yeah, and it's great inspiration for somebody. I, I mean, I, I, the danger I find for me is it's like the shiny object thing. There's so many people doing so many interesting things that it's like, I want to do self-storage now or I want to do, you know, like there's so 100%. many cool things and so many smart, smart people that are, you know, figuring it out and, and doing, uh, doing great stuff in real estate. So that's 100%. The, but it's that's the beauty of it too. It's just the the learning is just like probably the ideal place to be. I think absolutely. I wanted to get into fund that flip. You mentioned that. What are you doing for them? What do they do? And at what point did you leave your the petroleum company to? I guess would you you started at fund that flip after leaving that that first job? Correct. Yeah. So this was. Um, end
1: of 2021 is when I started to, it's when we were starting, we'd already started construction on a few different projects. And, um, we were, as you can imagine, like you got to talk to your general contractor or builder almost ideally daily. And so I was talking to the general contractor and he would call me with, you know, questions or, Hey, can you send me this permit or whatever it may be, this, just little things like that. And I was finding myself having to run into my office and kind of hide to take a phone call. And I was like, there's just no way this is sustainable. Like one of these things is going to kind of falter, right? It's either the job is or the um, actual projects were. And especially because I had, you know, people's money's people's money on the line, you know, investors that trusted me with their hard earned cash. I was like, I, I can't, I can't let that falter for sure. So I was looking for a job that would a little bit more, I guess, flexible or allowable for my personal real estate goals. And so on that flip is a a lender kind of bridge lender meaning we'll do loans for people who are doing fix and flip or new construction what we do differently is we obviously you know can close quickly you know in 2 weeks and we can do all the stuff that everybody can but the nice thing about us is we turn around and offer those loans to invest accredited investors on our platform so you know accredited investors can buy a piece of our loan and kind of earn monthly interest the same way as a lender would. They kind of almost become the bank. The reason why that's important for the borrower is because we, as we saw last year during July, August, when the rates shot up, a lot of the big institutional kind of hard money guys, they kind of started a close-up shop or came down way low on their leverage, or everything just kind of stopped because the only people they have applying their capital are these large hedge funds. And when those things, when that spigot turns off, there's no, there's no alternative for us when that spigot turns off, we can divert things to the the crowdfunding platform. So we have a diversity of, of capital stack, which is beneficial for the borrowers. So, and again, they're fully supportive of what I do on the side. They encourage it. And that's super helpful. I mean, a lot of people in the company are real estate investors. So it was just like the perfect fit for me. So what's
2: your role with them now? Investor relations director. Investor relations director. So Would you say it's helped working with Fund That Flipped? Has it helped your, you know, you're doing the duplexes and and that whole process you're investing in real estate?
1: Yeah, because I really wanted to learn kind of the back end of how a bank or a lender looks at a loan. You know, what are the criteria that they really weight more than others? Like, is it just, are they experienced or is it credit or is it, you know, all these things? So I got to really see how the underwriting works as well as just getting to meet investors, right? Before meeting investors was just something I would do on the personal side, but now meeting investors is part of the job. So it's been super beneficial to exchange information. Hey, here's what I'm doing differently. Here's the new trendy countertops or here's the, here's where I get my paint supplier, right? There's all these little maybe nuggets that I can pull from just meeting with um, different investors. That's been super
2: helpful. That's awesome. I wanted to talk to you about finding a general contractor when you did that first duplex. How did you go about finding someone that you trusted and were you worried about getting ripped off, whether financially or doing shoddy work or talk to us about finding a GC in that process?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, finding a good GC is like the the lifeblood of anyone doing construction or heavy value add projects, because if you're not going to do it yourself, you're at their mercy more or less. And so it was, it was definitely tough. I, I try to interview or at least meet with people, GCs at their projects. So I'd originally find them through these Facebook groups. Looking back, the thing I would do differently would be to drive around in areas you want to develop in or do remodels in and stop at the job sites that are actively ongoing. So if you see a flip coming on or going on, you see the painters there, the painter may not be the GC, but if you stop and say, Hey painter. I'm looking to do a remodel myself. Can you send me your, you know, boss's number or your the general contractor's number? Because the people who are actively doing stuff, they maybe not, might not have the time to be on social media, right? Because they're so busy. Like my GC now is not even on social media. Um, so the first you didn't end up working out. Um, he didn't necessarily, he screwed over, screwed me over a little bit. But
2: tell that story uh, you wrote about it. I and I think it's interesting what he did. Yeah, for sure. So basically, I had so
1: many. Well, I gave them a good amount of projects. Well, no, sorry. I guess there's two GCs, two GC stories. The first GC that you're talking about that I mentioned on Twitter is I had a GC that had built the duplex I live in. So that was I thought it would work out great because they built the one I live in. Then you know I tried to use them for the the build of ours once we were at that point. And so we had we had talked, we had arranged a contract, we were all good. And then a week. After, or I guess, a week before we were supposed to, we were supposed to start construction, he uh, he calls me up and says, "Hey, price actually just went up from two hundred thousand to like two hundred and thirty thousand or something. It was something like 15, 20 percent increase, just just like that. There was no explanation. Hey, here's a new price. You know how how did that happen overnight? Like, am I did like a asteroid hit all the lumber factories or like, and you can't get any? I mean, wh- what's the reason?" He's like like, oh, no, don't like, this is my new cost. Like you can afford it. You know, trust me. I saw the loan amount that you, that you guys have. I was like, well, well, first of all, the loan amount, you know, has other costs in there that aren't specifically just for construction. Like we wrap some of the closing costs in there and just some other stuff. So I was like, actually we don't have the money. We have kind of what you, what we agreed upon and what we signed the contract on. So I go, oh, well, I just won't do the work. I was like, okay. And we just, terminated it from there. We just didn't really speak again. And I had to to go find kind of get my backup option. Now my backup option ended up getting too busy on his own projects to work on mine. So like things starting to take a lot longer than they were supposed to end up having to let that guy go. So as you can see, I am just a magnet for, you know, great contractors and it works great every time. But I don't regret that because the reason, the thing that i think I did do well to protect the investors was I wouldn't release any money until work has been completed. So I don't pay any upfront. I said, you know, same thing with the contractor who I had to fire. It wasn't that big of a deal because I just paid him for what he yeah. has done. There was no, I didn't give him an extra 30,000 to kind of keep going. You know, he, if, if he stopped like 60% of the way through, I'd only paid him 60% of the money. So it really wasn't too difficult to get another GC in there and have him finish.
2: What are some key things that you look for in knowing that a GC is going to be a good one? And it's hard to know until yeah. you get into it, but what are some things early on that you can maybe red flags also to be aware of?
1: Yeah. It's like you said, it's tough to, until you get into it, but I think red flags are maybe too eager to respond sometimes, right? I mean, if they're constantly maybe checking in on on that quote they gave you or they gave you, or if they want to meet at the the site, it's like aren't you busy? Like, don't you have stuff to do? Um, how can you meet four days out of the week? Like I would imagine you should have some projects going on. So I think when they don't have projects going on, it can, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you just got to be a little bit more cautious because it could be easily a little bit of desperation, right? I mean, if that's their, their full-time job and the way they make all their income and they don't have any job going on, they may quote you a great price and it may not necessarily be what it'll actually kind of end up being. They may start to nickel and dime you here and there. So yeah, it's difficult. And I think I would still do it the same way. Like I would still only pay for work is completed. That way you're, you're not exposing yourself to too much risk.
2: Yeah. There's no way I'd pay for guys that ask for work or money up front. It's like, that's definitely a red flag. You know, if they don't have whatever, if they don't have cash to like fund themselves for the next week or so, it's like, Oh
1: <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I want you working on my job then. Cause that could be, you know, as you know, right. So for people who haven't done a construction loan, the bank pays you and draws, draws, meaning the bank or lender will send out an inspector to verify the work has been completed. And, you know, for whatever reason, sometimes the inspector may miss something or the bank is closed and your draw is delayed by a week or two. If you have a a GC who doesn't have any of his own cash and you are having to, if he's like, hey, I need that money like today. And you're like, well, the bank's not sending it till Wednesday or whatever. Either you personally have to pay that or your lender or, or the GC has to make it up. And so again, I'm in my case, I'm willing to pay it. But the point of the story was like, if they don't have their own money to last like another week, it's like, okay, it's a red flag.
2: And so did you finally find a good GC and was one of the, it sounded like one of the hurdles was somebody that's really good and really busy. If you're doing smaller, not, not that what you're doing is small but to maybe the GC at small and it's easy to get pushed off. I've had that experience where it's like, ah, you know, I'm making more money from X, Y, Z person. I'm going to focus on them because they give me solid, consistent work that I know that I can rely on. You're just a kind of a, maybe just a one-off deal. They don't know. How how did you overcome that to not get pushed off and get the work completed?
1: Yeah, it was it was obviously difficult. The thing we had going for us is that we started to acquire a lot kind of all at once. So by the time we had started construction on the, I think the first one or two, we'd already acquired 12 lots between three different investors. So my pitch to the the GC was like, hey, you know, for example, like the one that I had to come in and, and start to take over, I'm that's the one I'm still using to this day. I said, hey, Do me a favor, come in and take over this project and finish it up for me at this budget, and I will give you these other ten. So there's a kind of a carrot and a carrot to kind of chase after there, where okay, I'm gonna give you some volume. And so in exchange, I need a decent price. And so that's one way. But yeah, if you don't have the volume, then you're kind of at their mercy to you might have to pay a little bit more than you know, someone who's giving them volume would. And if you can make the numbers work and you And it's your first one, you know, may just kind of got to kind of get it done. And then once you can get some volume, you can start negotiating the price a little bit better.
2: Yeah. That first project is so important just to be able to show people that you can make a building happen or a duplex happen that you can do what you say you're going to do. Exactly. I wanted to talk about your exit strategy. Once you're building the duplexes, are you then renting them or are you selling them off? Or is it a combination of both?
1: Yeah, it's a combination of both. Um, what I do again, this was another thing back to like getting investors of protecting their money. What I did was I wanted to make sure that we could either sell it or rent it. It had to be profitable and at least two different exit strategies for me to feel comfortable to kind of take it to an investor. And so this was the reason why I couldn't get comfortable with the flips because when you do a flip and you couldn't sell it, they wouldn't really cash flow, And so both options work. It's just a matter of what the investor wants to do. So some investors, so right now, I guess we have a total of, uh, I guess like 12 investors total. And so some are, okay, I, I only want to hold, I want to refi and keep the cash in the deal or, and just kind of get the cash flow. And some are like, okay, I just want to sell. So it's kind of the investor dependent, but the good news is that both options work should, you know, one not, you know, make more sense than the other. So are you doing a
2: separate LLC for each project?
1: Um, in theory, we should. We do a separate LLC for each investor. So, with yeah, with one investor, I may have multiple projects in that same LLC. I'd say if we're, and the reason is because we should probably split them up. Um, the thing is, though, is like when we're signing the GC contract, the liability is kind of attached to the GC. So, we, we don't really, I'm sure we have, there's probably some recourse that someone could probably figure out. But in general, most of the liability is from the GC on the building side. Um, but yeah, as we transition to more long-term rentals, we'll, we'll probably look at doing like a series LLC, which is kind of just multiple LLCs under one umbrella LLC. And how many projects
2: have you done to date?
1: Yeah. So we completed eight, like fully, um, cycled and then we're have 15 under construction currently.
2: Wow. 15. (laughs) So are you at the projects? How often? What's a daily, you've got your regular job. How are you managing this as well?
1: Yes. Yeah, so like I mentioned, the nice part is that they're all in that area where I live in. So I can hit all 15 sites in the span of 10, 15 minutes because they're all two minute drive from my house. So I probably hit them a couple times a week, I would say. And then I'm also in constant contact with my GC in terms of like what inspections we have or what's left on a, on a project. So that's been super, the communication piece has been huge. Now that I've done it a few times, like the GC kind of knows what I'm looking for. We keep the floor plans more or less the same, so we're doing the same thing on each one: same tile, same tile, you know, flooring, cabinets, granite, everything's the same. So the GC is, you know, again, he's finished eight of them for me, so he kind of knows, you know, what I'm looking for at this point.
2: Make it way easier once everything's kind of standardized, and you just scale it. How do? How often are you communicating with your investors?
1: Yeah. So I communicate, I guess I try to do like monthly or uh, sometimes it's like quarterly, depending on what the news is. When there's active construction, I try to do it monthly. But if there's, if we're just waiting on permits or something, there's not much to really communicate, you know, Hey, still waiting on permits. And then as we get closer towards like the end of construction, i will say, Hey, I kind of confirm each exit strategy with them. So, Hey, you know, I'm planning to list this at this price, you know, here's the offer we got. Are you, you're cool with accepting it? And most of them already kind of implicitly trust me. Like, yeah, you know, not you know, do what you think is best, but I still include them to make sure that we're still on the same page. So, you know, Hey, we're, we're good with selling at this price. Here's what the, you know, net profit would be more or less like, yep. Sounds good. Send me the check button when, when it's done.
2: Do you have any of them, I don't know, get a little nervous and reach out to you making too many phone calls or, or I've, you know, I've, We've interviewed some hedge fund guys that like when things are dropping precipitously in price, investors yeah. get nervous and they'll reach out and make phone calls. And do you ever have that happen?
1: Yeah, I had a few of those like last fall, like when rates shot up. Um they were only like maybe two or three like called and were like, Hey, you know, how are we looking? Are we are we still looking okay? And I said, Yep, you know, I'm I think on on every single project we we still even the ones that we started at the peak of last year. We're still going to hit the same pro forma numbers um, for the sales price. And so, and I said, hey, the reason why is because the supply is so low of duplexes in Houston, because there's so much land, everyone just builds single family and they we just go out and out and out. Um, nobody builds infill duplexes. So if someone wants an infill duplex, we set the price because we're the only, we're our own competition at this point, because we've already sold the same floor plan. You know, here's the comps, you can kind of take it or leave it because the nice part of, about being able to rent it out is, Hey, if we don't get the price we want, maybe we just rent it up. And so, you know, that's been able to get some buyers on board with the, with the price. Some had tried to start the low ball late last year. I was like, no, there's no, there's no comps for that, which is the nice part, right? In residential, that's all based on comparable sales. I'm like, nope, we're, we're going to get our, our full asking. Um, otherwise we'll just, we'll just keep it. So, um, luckily so far is, so far has been good but, you know, maybe a more challenging market here the next, you know, one to three years.
2: Do you try to stagger the sales? Like when you, let's say you've got two finished projects will you put one on the market and like hold the other kind of in reserve to release later. Is that something you do?
1: Yeah. What I do is try to, I try to market them off market on my social media. So I'll post them, Hey, I got these addresses available that way. So I don't, like you said, I want to stagger how I post them uh, on the MLS. That way that I don't see five duplexes. And now they're trying to decide between which one I try to give them one or two options. So I may only have one or two active at one time. And then the other ones I'll try to sell off market, um, on my Instagram or, or Twitter. And that way there's not, I'm not competing against myself too much.
2: That's cool. So long next couple of years, what do you see going forward? Are you continuing to push it? Are you continuing to buy lots are you with rates up? Are you Taking a little bit of a breather
1: yeah so we haven't the, we actually just closed on our first lot, you know this uh, like two weeks ago but before that we hadn't bought anything in, in since april of 2022 so the last two three quarters of last year we we didn't buy anything just because i wasn't comfortable with where the prices were um, relative to where rates were going so but now i'm starting to see sellers are starting to be a little bit more realistic starting to get more comfortable about where rates may be like maybe they'll they'll land in the five to six range for homeowners, which means investors, I can, I can kind of underwrite to a, a reasonable refi rate, right? Rather than hoping and praying, because I think last year when I was doing my numbers, I was underwriting to a, a five and a half, which seemed reasonable because rates were at three. And then end of the year, you know, we ended up refining at like seven and a half. It was like, oh, well that wasn't as accurate. So now I'm just kind of underwriting to that seven and a half with I don't think the rates will go up too much from here but if they do again we're we're still have enough profit margin to where it'll make sense but yeah i want to scale up i want to do hopefully some bigger projects in terms of either like multiple duplexes all in one like one subdivision type of thing or because right now they're all scattered so i'd like to keep them more centralized and get some kind of efficiencies that way as well as get into some hopefully apartments one day
2: that's awesome so how are you doing the the split with the investors? What does that agreement look like?
1: Yeah. So it kind of varies, I guess, more or less, it's usually 70-30 in their favor or 60-40 in their favor. So I make sure they have kind of controlling interest because I want them to, first, I want them to make money, right? I want them to make a lot of money, them to be happy because I want them to come back on the next ones. So I think right now I'm being like, I don't charge any fees either. So that's the other thing. I guess the typical, maybe raising money model is like seventy thirty or eighty twenty to the investors, but you're charging fees now again, for me on a small deal, it just doesn't make sense to charge fees. it's maybe like two grand or something because think about it of like two percent of a hundred thousand dollar raised you're not really you're not getting rich off that, so I prefer to just leave it all that in the deal and just do a straight profit split and again, for newbie investors, I think that's good because you don't make any money until your investor make money. So that's the way for the, uh, the investor to get comfortable. It's like, hey, I don't get anything until I actually execute.
2: Yeah, that totally makes sense. I had a younger guy on recently. The interview actually just was released today, Sean O'Dowd. Okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And he talked about how he wants to just work his butt off until he's 35. He's got a number that he wants to hit. And then once he hits wow. that, wants to go do you know whatever, go travel with his mm-hmm. wife and kids or... Do whatever, you know. Do you have any kind of goals like that?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, I don't have a number. Well, I guess I do have a number. I have a certain number of like cash flow per month that I would like to hit, but I don't necessarily want to maybe relax from the on the gas from there. My goal is to hit that number by thirty. Basically it's just some multiple of what my, my living expenses are. That way I could choose to do kind of whatever I want or have the quote unquote financial freedom. But I think I'm I'm too I'm too like addicted to real estate to I think ever stop i think i'll I'll be in it for as long as I can tell um it's just a matter of uh what what asset class at that point so but yeah, i wanna have a this monetary goal by thirty I'd like to hit, but just it won't really change anything,
2: yeah, you got the fever I think I read you you wanted to be an accredited investor by the time you're thirty was that is that right
1: exactly yeah that's that's one of the goals for sure is like you know i guess i I like to hit the two hundred thousand for two years which is uh, like one of the, the metrics, I guess. So I'd like to hit that for sure by 30.
2: Right, right. Well, I wish you all the best, Donovan. This has been really great. <laughs> I've got a ton of questions I didn't get to. So maybe we can Sorry do this again that. some other time. I, I really enjoyed talking with you.
1: 100%. Thank you so much for having me on.
2: Yeah. So for our listeners that wanted to learn more about you or reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get in contact? I'm on Twitter at uh,
1: Donovan Builds, Instagram. Donovan underscore six five one. Or if you want to shoot me an email, it's donabin.adesero at fund that
2: And you're pretty active on Twitter. Do you respond to people that have questions for you?
1: Oh, all the time. Yeah. I try to help out as much as I can. So let me know anything I can help out with, and uh, you'll you'll hear from me for sure.
2: Awesome. Donovan, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I right, Take care. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by The Investor's Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investor's Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.